Attention lovers of mysteries. I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey everyone, I've got a quick note here before we get started. One of the biggest challenges with producing podcasts about history is the names, mostly the names of people. This episode is a prime example. There's a woman in this episode who has an old-fashioned name that I've never seen or heard before in my life. I scoured the internet to see how other people pronounce it, and I found three different versions. It's either Leonide, Leonide, or Leonide. I have no idea which one is correct, so I chose Leonide. If I end up being wrong, I'm sorry about that, but I couldn't go back and re-record the entire episode, so I'll just have to live with it. That's the deal, and with that said, on with the show. The year was 1927. Fall had arrived, but the summer heat still battered New Orleans. The French Quarter bustled with activity, both legal and that which bends the rules. At night, freewheeling flappers danced to live music. Five-star restaurants dotted one side of town, and the famous brothels of the Red Light District dotted the other. Celebrated American author William Faulkner lived in the French Quarter for a brief time in the mid-1920s, but by the fall of 1927, he had moved back to his home state of Mississippi. One of New Orleans' favorite sons, Louis Armstrong, made a name for himself in the jazz clubs in the early 1920s, but by 1927, he had been lured to Chicago and New York, where he became an international star. In the 20s, New Orleans was the wealthiest city in the South. Cotton remained a major export, and the port of New Orleans was second only to New York. New Orleans had nearly twice the economic activity of Dallas, the second wealthiest city in the South, and was much greater than Houston, Atlanta, Memphis, or Birmingham. The money flowed, the music blared, and the Roaring Twenties gave no hint of the economic collapse that would happen six years in the future and the Great Depression that would follow. But that's not to say that there weren't those who struggled, even during a time of general prosperity like the Roaring Twenties. On the edge of the French Quarter, half a block from Bourbon Street and four blocks from a street called Pirate's Alley, where William Faulkner lived, trouble was brewing in an apartment that was shared by two couples. Two women who were close friends married a pair of brothers, but poverty and assorted other issues led to marital problems. The problems worsened, the darkness deepened, and on October 26, 1927, the French Quarter's fun momentarily halted 
when a maid walked into the apartment that was shared by the two couples and screamed at what she saw. It was the scene of a murder that was ghastly even by the standards of New Orleans, a town with a legendary history of grisly crimes, both real and rumored, that gave people nightmares. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This is one of those times when I'm really thankful to be in the podcast business because I discovered something I probably wouldn't have otherwise. Marquee TV. It's a TV streaming service that focuses on arts and culture, and their support is why we're able to bring this podcast to you. On Marquee TV, you get to watch high-quality productions of dramatic theater performances, operas, and ballets. You get exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. And the first thing I did was watch a production of Shakespeare's Richard II, starring David Tennant. He's one of my favorites, and the production was phenomenal. And right now, Marquee TV is offering three months access for just 99 cents. That's three months for only 99 cents when you sign up using the code AMERICA. Go to marquee.tv and use the code AMERICA. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV and get three months for just 99 cents. Visit marquee.tv and use the code AMERICA to start your journey into the world of arts and explore the extensive library of performances on Marquee TV. And keep up with the latest in arts streaming by following at Marquee TV on social media. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. And this season, we're telling four infamous stories from New Orleans in a six-episode series. This is our final tale of the season, Episode 6, The Trunk Murders. In 1927, French Quarter flappers Teresa and Leonide lived in a small apartment at 715 Ursuline Avenue with their husbands, Henry and Joseph. The men were brothers. Teresa was married to Henry. Henry spent time briefly in the Navy before being dishonorably discharged, the first of many self-inflicted implosions. Leonide was married to Joseph. Their early years were spent in the South Louisiana town of New Iberia. By all accounts, their marriage was relatively unremarkable there. Eventually, the couple moved to New Orleans and into the apartment of Henry and Teresa while seeking a way out of their extreme poverty. In New Orleans, their finances, and ultimately their marriage, both got worse, not better. Employment didn't come easy for the two families. The apartment in the French Quarter was made even more cramped by Teresa and Henry's three children who scurried around the tiny residence. 
with seven people stuffed into a small apartment, the basic act of living was stressful. Henry and Joseph worked odd jobs and mostly struggled to provide for their families despite the relative opportunity of New Orleans. That was mostly self-inflicted. Friends described the men as shiftless. Often, the brothers were not above breaking the law to scrape together some quick cash. Infidelity existed in both marriages, and seemingly on both sides of the marriages. It seems likely that both the husbands and the wives cheated on each other. Because Henry and Joseph struggled to make money, their wives were forced to find work as well. The hostility mounted, and finally, Leonide separated from Joseph. But with little money and no other options, she couldn't move out. She was forced to continue to live in the tiny apartment, and that made the tension in the home worse. The most insight available into the lives of the two couples comes from a letter that Leonide wrote. She hoped to be a published author by writing what amounts to a philosophical autobiography that she sent to a popular women's magazine. But much like the rejection she felt from her estranged husband, the magazine chose not to publish Leonidas' work. The letter is believed to have been written during the couple's time in New Iberia, back when relations were thought to be a bit better for Joseph and Leonidas. Leonidas longed for happier days. In her writing, she imagined herself in a fantasy world in which she was able to find happiness after Joseph. She wanted independence and peace. She wanted to be on her own and away from Joseph's anger and infidelity. To her, being forced to live with the burden of an unhappy and potentially abusive marriage felt like an inescapable prison with the walls closing in. Leonide wanted to use the pain of her own experience to help warn other women she wanted them to pay attention to the red flags before they ended up in violent and unloving marriages. She wrote, Now to you readers, young girls especially, please think ahead of you and do not make the mistake I've made, because it does not always turn out the right way. You can still be disappointed. Guess it was only my luck to be unhappy like this, so I warn others not to take the same risk. Leonide regretted not listening to the advice of her father, who did not approve of her union with Joseph. Her dad told her to get away from the violent man, but she was struck by what she thought was love and she ran to Joseph instead of away from him. In her writing, she yearned to tell other women to listen to the good advice and instincts of their family when choosing a man. Be careful, for marriage is a life sentence, she wrote. Sadly, her sentence ended up being much worse than that. For towns along the mighty Mississippi River, 1927 was marked by severe flooding of the river in April of that year. At least 1,000 deaths are attributed to the raging waters, and more than 600,000 Americans were left homeless as levees broke throughout the South. Indirect financial impacts of the disaster soared to estimates of $1 billion. The New York Times newspaper described the flood like this. Once more, war is on between the mighty old dragon that is the Mississippi River and his ancient enemy, man. Huey Long, probably the most notorious politician in Louisiana's history, became governor the following year thanks largely to the disastrous impacts of the Great Flood on the popularity of his predecessor. In the home of Henry and Teresa and Leonide and Joseph, 
the flood added yet more strain to their relationships. They were already struggling to make money, and the devastation of the flood made it harder. The floodwaters receded as the heat and humidity of summer smothered the city, and as the relationships between the two couples deteriorated, October arrived, and with it, the straw that broke the camel's back. Henry drank more and loved his family less, driving the wedge between the family even deeper. Henry took a job as a butcher's assistant, a profession he had held before. He didn't really like the job, but he became good at it. As a bonus, the regular paycheck somewhat helped pay for his addictions. Joseph was mostly out of the scene at this point, aside from occasional drunken excursions with his brother. And around that time, Henry fixed his ire on the landlord of the apartment. The man's name was Joseph Caruso, and, maybe fueled by the guilt of Henry's own infidelities, he was suspicious of Caruso from the beginning. Henry often made vulgar comments about Caruso's visits to the apartment. Henry had previously accused his wife, Teresa, of prostituting herself to help pay the bills. Now he suspected she also had a regular boyfriend. Henry's anger grew with each passing day. He and his brother talked about Henry's disdain for Caruso during their nights in the French Quarter bars. Henry would later say he believed there was something going on between his wife and the landlord from the minute the families moved into the apartment. He alleged that Caruso and Teresa would take friendly trips on streetcars while Henry was out on the town. He said he'd caught them passing love letters and embracing outside the apartment. It's not clear whether the examples were real or drunken delusions, but Henry was already prone to anger and violence. Now, the jealousy and suspicion drove Henry's rage to an even greater level. On October 26, 1927, the thermometer reached 90 degrees that afternoon. It was a Wednesday, and Teresa and Leonidi decided they'd had enough of Henry's anger and excessive drinking. The women formulated a plan. They'd committed to moving out of the apartment and taking the children with them. They didn't know where they'd go or how they'd make it happen, but they agreed that anywhere away from Henry would be an improvement. When Henry woke up that morning, hungover as usual, he confronted the ladies in quiet discussion and confronted his wife, Teresa. Teresa had lost all patience for Henry. While he yelled and insulted her, she pulled out a sweaty $10 bill and waved it in her husband's face. She boldly told Henry she could make more money in an hour as a prostitute than Henry could make in a week at his little job at the butcher shop. In Henry's mind, the taunt confirmed his darkest suspicions about his wife. He stomped off to work with those thoughts twisting and contorting in his head. When he came home that evening, he was already drunk. He found the women laughing and gleefully packing their belongings into a pair of large antique trunks. Henry left the apartment, slurping alcohol down the stairway and into the French Quarter streets. He stopped at various bars for quick drinks and then made his final purchase of the night, a razor-sharp knife. Some folks called it a banana knife, but most referred to it as a cane knife. It was popular in New Orleans and South American agricultural circles for harvesting sugarcane. It featured a wooden handle and a blade that was up to a foot long. It looked more like a machete or a thin, sharpened lawnmower blade 
than a knife that you'd find in the kitchen. In many cases, cane knives also featured a hook at the tip of the blade that was used for helping gather the chopped cane stalks. The knife's blade was often sharpened to a razor's edge to be used for chopping a day's worth of cane stalks before needing to be resharpened for the next day's use. As Henry scanned the options at the French Quarter hardware store, he chose the cane knife. With a bottle of whiskey in one hand and the cane knife in the other, Henry stormed back to the apartment on Ursuline Avenue. It was growing dark outside. As revelers spilled out of the bars, Henry waited for Teresa, Leonidi, and the children to fall asleep. While he hovered in the shadows, sinister thoughts raced through his mind. At one point, he wondered if he should hurt the children. That would really devastate the women, but he quickly dismissed the idea. That was too far. Henry's mind quickly went to a familiar place. The thoughts of Joe Caruso and his wife, Teresa. In his imagination, they frolicked and laughed about Henry's stupidity as he toiled in the butcher shop. When he was certain the women and children were asleep, he crept upstairs to the apartment. He found his wife sleeping soundly in their bed. He attacked Teresa with the knife and unleashed months of embarrassment and fury. He admitted later, she didn't say a word or move. She just relaxed and the blood rushed. When the slashing was done, he moved to the bedroom of his sister-in-law, Leonide. He'd always blamed her for corrupting Teresa's opinion of him. She was the reason their marriage failed. In Henry's mind, it was all Leonide's fault. He didn't deliver as many blows to his sister-in-law as he did to his wife, but within minutes, both women were dead. Amazingly, the murders were conducted so quietly that the children didn't wake up. And now, Henry looked around the apartment. His blood was still up and his adrenaline was still surging. His gaze landed on the two big trunks that Teresa and Leonide were using to pack their belongings. Henry tried to stuff his wife's body into one of the trunks, but she wouldn't fit. Apparently, he was dead set on using the trunks to hide the bodies. But as he just learned, the trunks were too small for his purpose. That meant he was going to have to do some very grisly work. But he, more than most people, knew how to do it. There was no better training for what he was about to do than working at a butcher shop. Henry pulled out a whetstone and sharpened the long blade of the cane knife. There's no record of how long the next part of the story took, but we can probably leave it to the imagination. The results of Henry's actions on the night of October 26th were discovered the next morning. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In early October, the New York Times celebrated the historic baseball season of the New York Yankees. On October 8th, the Yankees completed a four-game sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates to win the World Series. Along the way, the Yankees became legends. Babe Ruth broke his own home run record by setting the new mark at 60. His young phenom teammate Lou Gehrig hit 47. 
The heart of the Yankees' batting order was so feared that it earned the nickname Murderer's Row. Six players, the manager, and the team president eventually made it into the Baseball Hall of Fame from a team that still ranks as one of the best in the history of the sport. And all of that came a few months after Charles Lindbergh became the most famous person in the world. He completed the first non-stop solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean in May of 1927 when he flew from Long Island, New York to Paris, France. But by the end of October, as Halloween neared, Lindbergh's accomplishment was a distant memory and the Yankee season was fading from the headlines. A story from New Orleans shocked readers and it was given a more literal nickname than that of the Yankees players. The crimes of Henry Moiti were dubbed the Trunk Murders. In the pre-Depression era of New Orleans, even for families who were struggling to make ends meet, it was not uncommon to have a maid. When she arrived at the apartment on the morning of October 27th, Nettie Compass discovered the gory scene. Nettie raced downstairs, where she encountered a pair of insurance salesmen who were walking to work. In an uncommon twist, the men alerted a local newspaper reporter instead of the police. The reporter was George William Healy, who would later recount the scene in his memoirs. He wrote, We found red stains on the floor and saw a large trunk in the bedroom, partially open. When I pulled up the trunk lid, a woman's body, arms and legs, severed from the torso, were exposed. There was no working telephone in the residence, so Healy went next door to use a neighbor's phone. Healy was eager to protect his scoop, so he contacted a fellow reporter instead of the authorities. Healy's co-worker, a woman named Gwen, arrived and surveyed the scene. She grabbed four female fingers off the floor and held them up for review. Gwen went to the adjacent bedroom where she found the body of a second victim. The cane knife rested on the torso of one of the bodies. It was later determined that the severed fingers belonged to Teresa. Clumps of hair and other random body parts lay strewn around the bloody apartment. Other blood-covered personal effects were also scattered here and there. And there was another discovery the writings from New Iberia of an idealistic young Leonide. It was the autobiography that warned women about marrying the wrong man. Beside it, and dotted with bloody fingerprints, was a rejection letter from a publication. Henry had no doubt found the piece, possibly while emptying the trunk to put Leonide's body inside. A newspaper account of the scene accurately pinpointed the chief suspect. The first reports of the murder in the New Orleans Times-Picayune said, The manner in which the two bodies of the women were mutilated and dismembered indicated a man familiar with his trade. Later, during the trial, the coroner agreed with the newspaper's assessment. He emphasized Henry's talent with a knife, thanks to his time working in a butcher shop. It was clear from the beginning that Henry was the prime suspect. Back at the crime scene, police eventually showed up and shooed the reporters from the apartment. While they processed the scene, the only thing they were missing was that prime suspect. Henry had disappeared and was on the run. Much like any crime of passion, New Orleans police worked quickly to find the spouses of the deceased. Joseph, 
who ended up moving in with his sister after he and Leonidas split, turned himself into police to answer questions one day after the gruesome scene was discovered. He told authorities he had caught his wife with another man and couldn't tolerate the betrayal. He said he no longer lived in the apartment and played no role in the crime. His brother Henry, on the other hand, was nowhere to be found. Police asked around and soon heard that Henry might be staying at a nearby boarding house in an attempt to escape out of the Gulf of Mexico. Authorities contacted the seven ships that made daily trips from the port. They told captains and crewmen to be on the lookout for a man who had dark bushy hair, very dark brown eyes, and a tattoo mark on his arm, a flower with a lady's face, also a nude woman. The detailed description left Henry exposed and without cover. Just two days after the bodies were discovered, Henry was found after begging his way onto a freight ship named the Gem. He had used an alias, as well as naval lingo and knowledge gleaned from his short time in the military to gain access to the ship. But a member of the crew recognized Henry by the description of his unique tattoo and quickly alerted the sheriff's department. Once in custody, Henry knew he had little hope. In a last desperate move, he told Lawman that a red-headed sailor had committed the crime and asked Henry to tag along. Realizing the evidence was stacked against him, Henry gave a full confession a week after the murders. He gleefully recounted the crime. He said his mind and moral compass were skewed by years of alcohol abuse. He talked about his anger regarding Teresa's affair with the landlord, and he said his rage grew uncontrollable when she said she was leaving him. He told lawmen that his wife was unfaithful as well as neglectful of their children. He also said Leonidi deserved to die because of her meddling and negative impact on their marriage. Nettie Compass, the housekeeper, told authorities that a drunken Henry spoke to her the day before the murders. She said Henry told her he'd take a pistol and shoot both of those bastards. In court, Nettie testified that she remembered Henry telling her not to be frightened if she heard the children crying in the early morning. Henry Moiti was found guilty of the murders of Leonidi and Teresa. He was sentenced to two concurrent life terms in prison. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. Henry began serving time at the Louisiana State Penitentiary on July 6, 1928. Despite his sentence and the gory nature of his crimes, Henry soon earned a large amount of freedom behind bars. He was made a trustee of the prison just six years into his sentence, meaning he was not as guarded as the other prisoners. He also could make unsupervised but brief trips into town. Ten years later, in the summer of 1944, Henry made a visit to the post office and decided to hail a taxi that would take him to Hammond, Louisiana. From there, he took a train to Chicago. The superintendent of prison camps in Louisiana didn't seem worried about Henry's disappearance. He told observers that Henry would quickly return, as he had already served 16 years of his sentence and had a chance of being pardoned due to temporary insanity for his level of alcohol consumption during the murders. But after two years, Henry still hadn't returned. In 1946, Henry was pulled over for a traffic violation in St. Louis, Missouri. When officers determined his identity as a prison escapee, 
he was transported back to Louisiana. Even though he'd spent two years on the run, the prison board said he could be released in 1947. Louisiana Governor Jimmy Davis signed the pardon to release Henry on March 26, 1948. 21 years after the brutal murders, Henry Moiti was a free man. Turning Henry loose turned out to be a bad decision, and it nearly cost another young woman her life. Upon his release, Henry moved to California. Nearly 10 years later, in a Los Angeles hotel room, he shot his girlfriend, Alberta Orange. The bullet punctured her lung, but thankfully she survived. Henry was sentenced to five years at Folsom Prison for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. And that was finally the end. Thirty years after the infamous trunk murders, Henry died of a stroke at Folsom Prison in 1957. Next time on Infamous America, it's a story that was known for many years by the collective name The Osage Murders. In more recent times, it's known by the title of the popular book about the story, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a story of conspiracy and murder in the Osage Nation, and we're telling it ahead of the release of the new movie directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. That's next time on Infamous America. Members of our Black Barrel Plus program don't have to wait week to week for new episodes. They receive the entire season to binge all at once with no commercials. Sign up now through the link in the show notes or on our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. Memberships begin at just $5 per month. This episode was researched and written by Jay Streisner. Original music by Rob Valier. Copy editing by me, Chris Wimmer, and I'm your host and producer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube. Just search for Infamous America Podcast. This show is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Please visit airwavemedia.com to check out other great podcasts like Ben Franklin's World, History of the Great War, and many more. Thanks for listening.